You're listening to AIB Market Talk with our latest financial market update. Hello, everybody. We've got something a little bit different from our usual economic insights today. AIB held a live event where our panel of experts discussed the business trends that could affect your business in 2022, as well as the upcoming digital trends to look out for in the year ahead. It featured some great discussions with Tom Standage, Deputy Editor and Head of Digital Strategy at The Economist, Una O'Hagan from Mars Pharmacy Group, and Sean Murray, CEO at Snap Ireland, and was hosted by Richard Curran. While it is a little longer than our usual podcast format, there was much to talk about, and we hope you may get some interesting insights along the way. Enjoy. Good morning and welcome to this AIB Business Leaders Live event where we're looking at the business trends of 2022. Uh, It's been an extraordinary 2020, an extraordinary 2021, but I think it's fair to say that we can look forward to this year with a little bit less uh, trepidation and perhaps some more optimism as well. Where we're going to talk about those trends, we're going to look ahead. We've got a fantastic lineup of speakers and contributors for you, and we have an opportunity for you to participate in the discussion. You'll see to the right of your screens that you can submit questions and we'll have polls as well. So keep an eye out for those and please do engage fully and get the most out of the opportunities of the morning. Well, I'm delighted to, uh, to welcome on behalf of AIB to make some opening comments and observations, Cathy Bryce, who is Managing Director of Capital Markets at AIB. Thanks, Richard, uh, and good morning, everyone. And first of all, thank you for taking the time to join us this morning. In AIB, our mission is really to be at the heart of our customers' financial lives. So what does that mean for you, our business customer? Well, I think it's understanding your business trying to understand and help you with the strategic context text that is uh, shaping the opportunities and the challenges for you and really trying to be a key strategic partner for you. And this morning's conversation is is really all about that. So what what have you been telling us in the last uh, number of months of 2021 and what have we been seeing out there in the economy? I think, first of all, it's that, you know, 21 was a very, very positive year for Irish business. Um, We mightn't have expected that. uh, So it was really good to see. Uh, Yes, there are challenges out there. We hear about supply chain blockages. Obviously, we're seeing higher energy prices and we're seeing a very tight labour market, particularly in in certain parts of the economy. Uh, And that's leading to inflation. But the we have also been able to see you as customers passing through uh, price increases to, to, uh, within your business, which has helped with all of that. If I look to broader themes, um, I'd like to call out three in particular. I think firstly, sustainability. Sustainability continues to be, uh, and really th- that conversation turbocharged in 2021 and, and as we go into 22, um, how can Irish business be at the heart of Ireland becoming a low carbon economy? And that challenge is out there for all of us. Secondly, I'd like to talk about digitization. Uh, Of course, that's not a new theme, but how does technology make your business better, more efficient, and how does it make the experience for your consumers better? Uh, And that continues to be an evolving theme. And and I know Tom is going to talk about that later on this morning. Um, But possibly what's trumping all of that, um, and what I would point out is, how do businesses retain and recruit great people? And how do we make that employee proposition great for 2022? And I really think that's going to be a key, key challenge. 
Um, so I'm looking forward to uh, all of your contributions and your feedback during this morning's session. I'm really looking forward to Tom's insights into global themes. And I'm also looking forward to hearing Una and Sean, our customers, uh, giving their real life experience to us later on this morning. Um, I'd like to go back and say that, um, you know, more than anything else, to just reiterate that the outlook for 22 to us in AIB looking forward and hearing all of you speak to us is that it's a very positive outlook, um, a position that we certainly would have taken 12 months ago. Uh, so I think it's all about how, do, how does one avail of the opportunities? And I think this morning's conversation will be helped to shape those uh, themes. So with that, I'm going to pass back to Richard and looking forward to this morning's discussion. Thank you very much, uh, Kathy. And Kathy will be staying with us for our first question and answer session, which we'll be doing after we hear from Tom Standage shortly. After that session, we'll take a short break and then we'll be back with uh, some business profiles and a panel discussion with uh, Sean Murray, with Una O'Hagan and with Catherine Moroni of AIB. But first, um, I suppose Tom Standage is a man who has been in The Economist for quite some time. He's the deputy editor. He probably thought he'd seen it all, but of course the pandemic came along and he hadn't seen it all. Um, but the question is, what does he see now? So uh, over to you, Tom Standage. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. Uh, yes, I'm deputy editor at The Economist and I, I wear quite a few hats and, and do quite a few different things. But one of my jobs at The Economist, probably my main job, is to think about the future, uh, both to guide our coverage, but also in my capacity as the editor of our future gazing annual, which is called The World Ahead. And you can see some covers from our previous annuals here. And this comes out every November. and We try to sort of guess what's going to happen in the in the coming year. So I spend a lot of my time thinking about the trends and the forces shaping the future and trying to make sense of them. And that's what I'm going to try to do for you today. I'm going to talk about seven trends shaping the business environment right now. I'm going to tell you where I think things are going in each case, what to look out for, what the arguments are going to be. So let's get started. Um, obviously, the broad overall context here is the interaction between the pandemic and the economy. And the general trend is that the pandemic is gradually turning into an endemic disease. But as you will have noticed, it's rather a bumpy road to recovery. The supply chain crunches, the spike in energy prices uh, that we're seeing at the moment that Cathy just mentioned are consequences of this rapid bounce back from the pandemic that we saw in 2021 in many economies around the world. And essentially what's been happening here is that people are unable to spend as much money on services like going on holiday or going to restaurants because of lockdowns. And um, so instead they spent the money on goods, whether it's garden furniture or a bigger TV or kitting out their home office or whatever. And that overloaded supply chains and, and pushed up prices. And this chart here shows you the shift from services to goods in the US. But in fact, the same thing has happened across the rich world. It's happened in 23 out of 25 OECD countries. And the shift in the UK was, was actually even bigger than this. So the US had the second biggest shift from services to goods. But the result is that, as we've heard in the, in the past few days and weeks, inflation is now the highest it's been for decades in many countries. We just had the, uh, the UK CPI numbers yesterday, uh, highest for, for three decades, highest for four decades in America uh, the previous week. 
And until recently, most economists and central bankers, until sort of uh, the end of last year, were arguing that this was temporary, that it would quickly pass, and that maybe interest rates would have to rise in, the, in, in some places. But uh, they pointed out that the factors that have kept rates and inflation low uh, in the past few years, such as demographic change and globalization, were still true, and that they would sort of reassert themselves fairly quickly in, in 2022. But I think there's been a change in the, in the mood, and there's now a lot more concern that we may see inflation higher for longer. Um, and this is in part because the virus is continuing to disrupt things, disrupt supply chains, not so much through lockdowns like we saw earlier on in the pandemic, but through labour shortages caused by the very rapid spread of Omicron as workers are forced to isolate or people are forced to stay at home to look after family members. I mean, sort of astonishing uh, figures have just come out from America about the number of workers in America. Something like 10 million workers at one point were uh, were unable to work in America because they were looking after other members of their household. So this suggests that the shortages and the delivery problems and the supply chain crunches that we've seen will persist this year um, and, uh, and price rises are unlikely to slow down as the virus makes its way um, around the world. And that means that the virus has made uh, inflation harder to fight. Omicron means that inflation will stay higher for longer and central banks are going to face some quite tricky choices in, in 2022 in some countries. The other thing that um, oh, I should I should mention the other chart. Yeah, sorry. Um, the the chart on the right shows you that the number of people mentioning supply chain crunches, inflation, and so forth uh, in earnings calls has really shot up, and this shows you that this is very much top of mind for business. I'm sure that's been your experience too. The other thing that has become a bigger worry as a result of Omicron. Uh, the, the other big risk to the world economy in 2022 is a slowdown in China, the prospect of, uh, of of disruption there. And this is a consequence of China's zero COVID policy, which requires big disruptive lockdowns whenever a few cases are found in a particular city. So there were a handful of um, of cases recently in the city of Xi'an, for example, and they just locked down the entire city. It's about, and it's more than 10 million people. And Omicron may make this much worse. The first cases of Omicron have just been spotted in China um, because uh, this would affect economic activity within, within China, further straining supply chains and hitting growth. And of course, the Chinese economy is also very dependent on the real estate sector, which is in trouble, as we've seen with Evergrande. And so GDP growth in China, which was 8% or so in 2021, could be 5% or less this year. And that would have knock-on effects on regional and indeed global growth. But the good news, I think, is that in the developed world, at least, we have a lot more tools at our disposal to fight the virus than we did a couple of years ago. And if you're fully vaccinated, you're very unlikely to become seriously ill or to die from COVID. And that means that countries can start to shift towards treating illness when it arises, rather than trying to limit the spread of the virus, which is, of course, you know, what we do with other endemic diseases like flu. So the end game, we know what it is. It's that the virus is everywhere, but it can, it can be managed and doesn't pose much danger to most people. We're closer to that world than we were a year ago, but we're not quite there yet. OK, so that's the general background. OK, now let's talk about um, some of the consequences of this. And the, the, one of the immediate ones is changes in consumer behaviour. Since the pandemic began, we've seen huge jumps in online shopping, video streaming, online learning, telemedicine, 
and all sorts of other ways of doing other things remotely, whether it's graduation ceremonies or leaving dues at work or, or whatever. Um, and uh, recent data, uh, you know, looking at all of this suggests that we've sort of vaulted ahead um, five years in consumer and business digital adoption, estimates McKinsey. And there are various other numbers being tossed around as well. Progress for online shopping in America, uh, you know, arguably 10 years growth in three months. In Italy, the, uh, the National Retail Consortium says that that country, which was very much a laggard in online shopping, has witnessed a 10 year evolutionary leap towards digital. Digital. In banking, experts reckon that the share of cashless transactions worldwide has jumped to the level they expected to see in two to five years' time. And in medicine, a British doctor told the New York Times that the National Health Service had undergone in Britain a decade's worth of change within a week as doctors found ways to switch to remote consultations. So if you look at forecasts in areas like online shopping, as you can see in this chart here, and these are the numbers for, for Britain and the US, it's, it's like we've jumped into the future. Um, and so it's like we're already in, in 2026 or, or 2031 or, or something like that. Um, and this is because we've seen this acceleration of adoption of technologies that were happening anyway, but we've sort of jumped forward uh, all along that adoption curve. This is another way of looking at it from McKinsey. Uh, now, you won't be able to read this um, clearly, but the main thing is to sort of get the overall picture. So what we've got is different activities down the left-hand side and different countries across the top. And the blue of the rectangle, the more people in that country have been doing that new digital online activity than were doing it before, whether it's going to school online or using video conferencing or, or whatever. And where there's a star, that means that at least 50% of the increase is new users. So what this, this high level picture shows you is two things. Firstly, that there have been huge increases in, in some areas, there's lots of dark blue there, in areas like online grocery shopping or remote schooling. And secondly, it's very much a patchwork. There have been different changes, different outcomes in different places. And it's not just online behavior either. During the pandemic, lots of new business models have emerged, like ordering you know, meal kits from your favorite restaurant or appointment-based shopping, virtual queuing. Um, so, uh, so this is something that, you know, and, and being able to order from your table using an app, live streamed e-commerce, all sorts of new behaviors have emerged. And, uh, and things like subscribing to uh, deliveries of bread or flowers, say, often from local providers. There's also been a shift towards local shopping in, in many parts of the world. Consumption from people who are working from home, they want to be able to go out in the middle of the day and maybe buy a sandwich or, or have a coffee or something like that. And this has resulted in a shift of economic activity from city centres towards suburbs. So you talk to bosses of coffee chains or sandwich shops and they are closing uh, stores in the city centres and they're opening more in suburbs. And the point is with all of these new behaviours, whether they're online or offline, um, some consumers at least are going to keep on doing them. But how many? So here's another chart from McKinsey and this is specifically about new shopping behaviours and the extent to which people who have tried new behaviours say they're going to go on doing these new things. And as you can see, the answer varies from country to country, but it's, you know, it's never less than, than 30%. Um, so it's clear that things are not going to snap back to the way they were in 2019, but nor are they going to continue at the level that they were at the, you know, the peak of lockdowns and, and so on, where, you know, some people have to do absolutely everything online. Instead, we're going to end up somewhere in between and exactly where will vary by country and by industry and activity. 
So what does that mean for business? It means that companies are going to have to be very agile. They're going to have to make greater use of data and analytics to track how their customers are behaving and then adjust what's happening in their supply chains accordingly so they can meet changing requirements as the new normal takes shape. And companies need to be open to new models and new ways of doing things. They always have. But um, digital transformation is obviously key to this, which is why we've seen a lot more investment in that area by many companies. And the companies that were already flexible and were you know, already fully digital have been able to adjust their behavior and outperform their peers during the crisis. We saw Uber, for example, pivoting from providing rides to delivering food. We saw restaurants switching to selling meal kits or ingredients online. And many of them now have essentially continuing e-commerce businesses, they've become online grocery stores selling wine and olive oil or ingredients or whatever, as well as selling food and still now running a, a restaurant that serves customers actually on the premises. And we saw some big brands like PepsiCo, for example, creating new direct-to-consumer channels specifically so they can get closer to their customers and find out what they want and how their behavior is changing. So it's this real-time view uh, the, to the extent that you can get it of what your customer wants and, and how those needs are changing and how it varies in different markets um, is really, really key. But these changes among customers, they're dramatic. What's even more dramatic though is the change in the relationship between employers and employees as a result of remote working. And I think, and this is um, the next trend, I think this is going to prove the pandemic's most enduring legacy for businesses. It's a really big shift. It's as big as the shift from you know, working in, to working in offices rather than working in factories or, or fields. Now, before we go any further, we should remember that not everyone can work from home, only about half the workforce can, even in the most developed economies. And if you look back a few years, many companies were reluctant to try working from home in the past because they worried that if it went wrong, they would look silly, they would lose out to rivals. And they were also worried about the impact on productivity. But the pandemic forced entire industries, entire countries to switch to work from home at the same time. And it forced everyone to experiment with new ways of working in ways that many companies would never have dared to try. And it turns out that for many people, as we now know, working remotely, at least some of the time, is much better than commuting five days a week. It doesn't seem to reduce productivity. And in fact, it may increase it. Here's a, a survey of, uh, of people uh, in different uh, countries, whether they think that productivity has uh, gone down, gone up, or stayed the same. And um, most people think it's either stayed the same or gone up. So there's now a general consensus that people who can work from home will be doing so more in the future, and that hybrid working where workers divide the working week between the home and the office will become commonplace. But beyond that sort of broad agreement, there is an enormous amount of scope for disagreement about the details. For a start, there's an interesting disparity between what bosses want and what workers want. Uh, bosses generally want people back in the office, workers not quite so much. There's also a disparity between what workers say they want and what they do when you give them a free choice. They say in surveys, oh yes, two days a week at home, three days in the office, that sounds reasonable. But if you give them a free choice, they often end up staying at home for four or five days a week. Then there's this whole question about whether you know you should uh, allow workers or teams to choose which days they they come into the office or not, or whether you whether you say this is how it's going to work and you sort of centralise that decision so that people in a particular team or in a particular working on a particular project are all in the office at the same time, and all of these sorts of um, generalisations. Um, assume that workers have the same preferences. And in fact, we know that they don't. 
Surveys from America and elsewhere suggest that women and members of ethnic minorities are less keen on returning to the office. One survey by Slack found that 3% of black knowledge workers in America wanted to return to the office full time versus 21% of white knowledge workers. And surveys also show that younger workers are keener to go back to the office more of the time than older workers. And presumably that's because older workers have built their professional networks, they've climbed the ladder, and so networking in person is less important to them. Now, these disparities matter because there's a lot of evidence that managers favor workers that they see and interact with more frequently. This is called presenteeism. And this means that there's a danger that if some groups of workers go back to the office less than others, those groups will miss out on pay rises, on promotions, and on other opportunities. And this could widen the gender pay gap, and it could mean that companies go backwards on diversity and inclusion. In short, the hybrid workplace of the future will actually be less fair unless it's designed not to be. And fairness isn't the only thing that needs to be worked out about hybrid working. We may need to update employment law in many countries. There's the whole question of surveillance. So some companies have been using software that tracks you know, how often remote workers are moving their mouse or pressing keys on the keyboard. And you may have seen uh, adverts for devices you can plug into your computer that then pretend to move the mouse for you. So it looks like you're, you're working more than you really are. There are questions about health and safety. If I get a bad back from sitting in this old chair in my study at home, is my company, is my employee and my employer liable? And then there are also debates about tax rules when you've got people who are living uh, some of the time and paying tax in one country, but then they're actually uh, working some of the time in another country or in another state. We're starting to see spats breaking out between um, US states about you know bankers who work in Manhattan notionally, but are in fact doing work from home in adjacent states to New York. Um, then there's the whole question of office space. Do we need less of it in this in this new world or might we actually need more of it? If we're going to be spending time in the office collaborating, then obviously we need a different sort of office environment. Um, and then there's the question of how you integrate you know, people who are in the office with people who are not in the office. This is a, a, a Google uh, prototype of something called Campfire. And the idea is that you know, people who are there in person can, can meet people who are not there in person and everyone's on an equal footing. So there's an awful lot of details to sort out. And it's going to take a long time, rather like you know, the impact of, of other changes like the, the rise of the internet. You know, we, we, it took several years and it's, in fact, it's still happening for the, uh, the business world to get used to that. So this is going to be quite a long process. It's going to require close consultation with staff and surveys and all that sort of thing. But the process of defining, I think, this new future of work really starts in earnest in 2022. And this is a chance to reset, to take a fresh look at things, to revisit processes, to fix problems. How are you doing recruiting? How are you doing promotions? Uh, you know, now that you can recruit people, maybe uh, further afield and so on. This is a real a chance to make changes to the way companies work to their internal processes and to work-life balance as well and to define not just a new normal but a better one. But there's also a warning here. Companies that don't respond and don't meet the changing demands of their workers will lose out to companies that do. And as we know, there's this enormous stirring of the employment pot underway at the moment, which is sometimes called the Great Resignation. So um, this is what people talk about when, when we talk about the Great Resignation. It was a term coined in the US and certainly in the US, people have been leaving their jobs in record numbers. And something similar is happening in Britain. 
Um, and companies are having to raise wages to attract and retain staff in many industries in many other countries as well. But how widespread is this really? Well, actually, we crunch the numbers at The Economist, and it does seem to be mainly an Anglo-American phenomenon. There's some evidence of a small uptick in resignations in Italy. There's no sign of it whatsoever in New Zealand. And in Canada, the rate of people leaving jobs has actually gone down since the pandemic began. So I think what we're really seeing is something else, which is labor shortages and difficulty recruiting, um, particularly in customer facing industries that rely very heavily on casual labor like hospitality. Um, and so what is what is causing this? Is this a sort of short term phenomenon um, or is it a longer term shift in the labor, labor market? You can actually argue that this one both ways. The short term arguments are that in America and in other places we saw sort of pent up resignations suddenly kicking in uh, towards the middle of, of last year that lots of people wanted to change jobs, but you know, they didn't want to lose their health care. They didn't want to, um, to, to take the chance in the middle of a, of a pandemic. Um, so you could argue that this is a sort of phase change that just happened once. Um, there's obviously unwillingness to work in, in customer facing roles right now. People are worried about infection. Um, savings uh, accumulated during the pandemic. You know, a lot of people weren't able to spend money or they were given stimulus money that they didn't spend. Um, that has made people less scared of quitting and high vacancy rates and rising pay mean that people are just more optimistic about being able to find something better. But you could also argue that there are sort of longer term shifts that have happened here too. Some people may have retired early during the pandemic. They may have just taken the opportunity uh, and left the labor market for good. Um, with more jobs now available that can be done remotely, we may have seen a permanent increase in the number of possible jobs uh, you know, available to workers in a given place, and also the, the number of workers available for specific jobs. So we you know, expect there to be a sort of resorting happening there. And in fact, you know, in some industries, that's definitely what's happening. Um, programmers, for example, now expect nearly all jobs to be done remotely. And it's very, very hard to hire programmers if you don't offer the option of remote or at least hybrid working. This is a, a chart from uh, a, a basically a recruitment board for programmers, and it shows you the number of uh, job descriptions that mention remote working being being part of the job. And you can see that it's just become uh, you know, the vast majority of them. So it's probably a bit of both of the, you know, the short term factors and the long term factors. Um, the current level of vacancies and churn is probably not permanent, but the labor market is likely to remain tight for the foreseeable future. And this gives uh, workers a lot more bargaining power. Essentially, there's less friction in the job market when it's possible to apply and interview and work remotely. And there have even been these anecdotes of people ghosting employee, employers. So they, you know, they interview for several jobs, they accept several of them, and then they decide which one they're actually going to show up for. Um, so this is all more reason, I think, going back to my previous point, why companies need to ensure that they're getting things right around conditions for remote working and meeting the changing demands of their workers, because if they don't, then another company will. I think it's also worth mentioning automation here. For years, people have warned that robots, that AIs are going to come and take people's jobs, but they never have. And in fact, employment in the OECD just before the pandemic was at record highs. And then when the pandemic struck, people said, well, OK, this is going to lead to automation. Remote work is the first step to, you know, giving work to an AI and companies are going to buy robots because they can never get sick and you know all this sort of thing. And that seems not to have happened either. Wages are rising and there's a labor shortage. And that's the opposite of what would happen if automation was taking people's jobs. Now, as a result of these um, labor shortages, we may see more things like cashierless shops, those, you know, Amazon high tech shops where you just take things off the shelf and it works out what you've bought. 
But if that does happen, it will be as a consequence of the strength of workers' bargaining position, not their weakness. And more generally, I think our thinking about automation is backwards. In the developed world, we face a shrinking labour force, an ageing population and a growing dependency ratio. And we need to improve productivity if we're going to support more retirees from a smaller working population. Britain and Ireland are quite far behind other OECD countries in terms of robots per capita. So I think we may well see a flip in the next decade from, oh no, the robots are coming and they're going to take all our jobs, to the robots actually can't get here quick enough. OK, having looked at customers and employees and the labour market, I want to zoom out again now and look at the business environment more broadly, starting with geopolitical uncertainty. Um, so as you will have noticed, and Brexit is a prominent example of this, businesses have had to deal with a lot more geopolitical uncertainty in recent years. It's not just Brexit, we also had the unpredictable trade wars launched by Donald Trump, even against America's allies. And that led to the sudden imposition of tariffs on various goods from steel to cheese to whiskey. And then we've had the various attempts to limit the sale of technology like chips and chip making equipment to China. The bans on using Chinese equipment in telecoms networks, which many countries have introduced at America's request. And then other things, India banned TikTok, for example, and a bunch of other Chinese apps after Indian and Chinese troops skirmished on their border. Makers of electric cars or wind turbines in Europe are worrying more and more about where they're going to get rare earth elements from because much of the supply runs through China. And rising US tensions mean that tech firms are suddenly paying a lot more attention to what's happening in the Strait of Taiwan, given that American firms from Apple to Google to Tesla rely on chips made by TSMC, Taiwan's chip making giant. So that's, you know, the, the chip in your, uh, your iPhone comes from, from Taiwan and so on. In all of these cases, like with Brexit, companies have to deal with political and regulatory uncertainty, with rules that are vague or badly thought out or suddenly change. And all of this increases costs and increases hassle. And the upshot is that many business decisions that didn't used to have a political dimension now do. And companies have to think a lot more about political risk, whatever industry they're in. This used to be something that, you know, if you worked in oil or or aerospace or something like that, you were, you know, of course you thought about political risk, but now it's everybody's problem. This is all a far cry from the neoliberal consensus of the 1990s. The idea that we were moving towards a world of greater openness in trade, the triumph of liberal democracy and so on. In fact, if you look at the numbers, globalization peaked around the time of the global financial crisis. And you can see that by these metrics here, which sort of measure various aspects of globalization. And that, that was also the point where democracy went into recession as well. People became uh, disenchanted with it, in part because of the way that uh, the global financial crisis was handled. And in retrospect, if we, if we now look back at the past 30 years or so since the collapse of the Soviet Union, we had a period of relative stability in politics and economics for sort of 20, 25 years there. We had low inflation and, and low interest rates for much of you know, the first few years of this century. And in part, that was a consequence of globalization, which drove down costs for many business. But that period is over. Political instability is back. Inflation is back. And of course, we have the pandemic to contend with as well. So what should companies be doing about all of this? Well, just as the key to dealing with changing consumer behavior in downstream markets is analytics and agility, the same is true when looking upstream at your supply chains. And as you can see from this chart, 
Companies are rethinking their approach to supply chains in all sorts of ways to make them shorter, to make them smarter, and to improve the visibility of suppliers. There's more emphasis on just in case rather than just in time. Running a less lean supply chain pushes up costs, but it also improves resilience. And one of the things that many companies have learned in recent years was that they'd gone too far optimizing their supply chains. There was no slack at all. And so any problem anywhere caused disruption. And this, of course, was all brought home to people in spectacular fashion in 2021 when the Ever Given got stuck in the Suez Canal, disrupting supplies of all sorts of things from furniture to car parts and reminding even ordinary consumers how much they depend on complex supply chains. 90% of the things around you travelled on a container ship at some point, but the smooth working of the global trade system clearly cannot be taken for granted. And it turns out that better visibility in your, into your supply chain is good in other ways beyond just sort of business resilience. Some companies were already looking into their supply chains in quite a lot of detail before the pandemic because investors have been pushing them to pay more attention to ESG, environmental, social and governance considerations. If you want to measure your carbon footprint or check that your suppliers are not using forced labour or cotton from Xinjiang, then you need to know what's going on in your supply chain in quite a lot of detail. And there was some evidence early in the pandemic that companies that do better on ESG criteria weathered the initial disruption of the, of the pandemic a lot better. And presumably this was because they can see into their supply chains more clearly. So when things go wrong, they have closer relationships with suppliers, they can find alternatives more easily, and they generally have a better idea of what's happening. But of course, that's not the main reason why companies are paying more attention to ESG considerations. Their main aim is to be able to show that they're doing the right thing to investors and customers by disclosing what they're doing on climate in particular, but also on these other criteria. Now, as you can see from this chart, this shows the extent to which different industries are uh, declaring what they're doing, making these uh, formal reports uh, about their emissions and, and what they're doing to cut them and so on. Now, this is mostly voluntary. Um, willingness, as you can see, varies widely by industry, and there's still clearly a long way to go. But the bigger picture clearly is that regulators are going to be making climate impact reporting mandatory, and this is gradually starting to happen. And this is something that's increasingly expected anyway by many investors and by consumers too. And that's because consumers are losing faith in government's willingness to act decisively on climate change. And they're preferring to put pressure on companies directly. And that brings us to our final trend, which is the politicization of business and the fact that companies are now prepared to take, uh, are now expected to take a stand on a range of political issues from climate to racial justice to human rights in China. And CEOs increasingly have to be politicians. Companies, amazingly, if you look at this chart from Edelman, uh, they're now more trusted than NGOs governments or the media. Now, this isn't because somebody suddenly everybody trusts business. It's because they trust everybody else even less. So why is this? Well, politicians don't seem to be doing enough in many people's view or indeed anything at all about these problems. And at the same time, civil society has become a lot more vocal. It has more ways to express disapproval, for example, through social media campaigns. CEOs are now the only societal leaders who are trusted to tell the truth and fix problems, um, according to some surveys. Consumers expect companies essentially to step in and fill the vacuum left by politicians' inaction or lack of trustworthiness. And they may also feel that lobbying companies is a more effective way 
to bring about change than dysfunctional politics. You only get to vote every few years. Some people say, well, why should I vote? All politicians are the same. Nothing ever changes. But, you know, how often I buy things? Well, I can make decisions about who to boycott or who to support much more often. And that makes me feel like I have uh, more influence. Also, companies are perceived to have the power to change things. We're in the extraordinary position where the trust barometer uh, finds that uh, business is the only institution that's now perceived as being both ethical and competent enough to solve the world's problems. So rather than keeping out of politics, companies are expected to speak up and take action. Now, clearly, some companies are more willing to do this than others. They worry about pleasing some customers, but alienating others. And it's not just about customers, it's also about the ability to hire and retain employees. Some companies that have tried to stay out of politics have found that their employees won't stand for it. A classic example was Coinbase, which is a cryptocurrency exchange. In 2020, uh, the boss of Coinbase was criticized by his workers because he hadn't spoken out publicly on Black Lives Matter and made it clear that he supported Black Lives Matter. And he re responded that social activism was a, dis a divisive distraction. It was hurting productivity in Silicon Valley companies, and it had nothing to do with what his company was doing, which was cryptocurrency. So he told his employees that they could leave if they didn't like this and they didn't like his company's culture. And he offered them a, a quite generous severance package and about 5% of his company took the deal. Uh, so clearly, you know, willingness to, uh, to, to take stands on this varies from companies and between, between industries. Uh, now, this is really difficult terrain for many companies, particularly those operating in China. If you speak out against what's happening in Xinjiang, for example, Western consumers may say, hooray, that's great. But Chinese consumers may boycott your products or the government may retaliate and you know, shut down your, your factories or whatever. Last year, Zara and Hugo Boss walked back statements they'd made distancing their operations from Xinjiang cotton because the Chinese objected. Intel had to apologize to China after telling its suppliers not to source anything from the Xinjiang region. And Intel decided that actually keeping the Chinese government on side was the, the better part of valor. Meanwhile, Tesla and Volkswagen and other companies are operating car showrooms in Xinjiang. Um, and it's, you know, you may notice now sports officials, when they're put on the spot about China and, uh, and events taking place in China, they suddenly become very evasive or they claim not to understand politics and they say it's nothing to do with them um, and so forth. So clearly different companies will make different judgments about where their interests lie. And in fact, Sometimes it may be that the best thing to say is indeed nothing. A report from Brunswick, another PR company, found that 63% of American executives thought that companies should speak out on social and political issues. But it turns out only 36% of American consumers agreed. And when, cons when companies do speak out, they really have to back up their words with real action. Otherwise, it just looks like insincere tokenist bandwagon jumping. So Brunswick says that companies should really only speak out when they've got a credible story to tell and a real connection to the, the issue in question. Anyway, clearly, this isn't going to go away. As people become more disenchanted politicians, they're going to expect companies to step up in more areas. And CEOs are increasingly going to need political skills and are going to be expected to be able to answer questions on all kinds of political topics. All the more reason to read The Economist, I might add. OK, so those are my seven trends shaping business right now and in the year ahead. And in conclusion, I would like to add one more thought, and that's this. People often ask when things are going to go back to normal. And the answer is that they aren't. The pre-pandemic world is gone and it's not coming back. 
And the rest of the 2020s, I think, are much more likely to look like the way things look in 2021 or 2022 than the way things looked in 2018 or 2019. This much more unstable world we now find ourselves in, whether it's because of the unpredictability of the pandemic or the economy or supply chains or geopolitics or rapid technological and social change, this is the new normal. It's already here. We're already in it. So we might as well get used to it. Thank you for listening. Tom, thank you very much uh, for that, uh, taking us on that journey around the world and where things are at right now. And uh, you, you've educated me there in relation to a few new concepts and ideas. Uh, one of them is the idea that people sit around in an office for a meeting and the ones who are only half listening online is called a campfire, which I thought was quite interesting. <laughs> I love the idea of virtual queuing. Uh, if we could get an app for, for all of that, it'd be great. Maybe we could entertain ourselves on, on the, the, the metaverse or whatever it is while we're virtually queuing. But as someone who grew up in 1980s Ireland, the idea of job ghosting, where basically you, you say yes to as many jobs as possible and decide which one you're going to show up for, that is, the world has really, really changed if job ghosting is happening. But I want to just go back to the start of your presentation where you talked a bit about inflation and you, you suggested that there's a bit of a rethink now around how enduring or how long this uh, spike in prices might go on. The European Central Bank, which affects our interest rates here in Ireland, uh, has a strong view that it's going to ease sometime in perhaps the middle of this year and that it's not necessarily going to be a long-term phenomenon. Do you think that they might be looking a little out of sync versus other central banks? Um, I, I, it, well, obviously, inflation is now, what, 5%, I think, in the, in the Eurozone, so way above the 2% target. Um, our experts at The Economist, who I've asked about this, have said, actually, uh, you know, the expectations that the, the Fed in the US will tighten maybe four times this year, that does seem reasonable, and that's, that's what people are expecting. Uh, but that's something of an outlier. So, um, so, so there, is, there is more concern about overheating in the US economy, I think, than, uh, than in Europe. So maybe that's not such a, uh, you know, maybe the, maybe the ECB is, uh, that sounds kind of uh, plausible. I think the main thing is that this is, uh, this is still very much a change from the way things looked sort of three quarters of the way through last year, when there really was an expectation that uh, this would be a very, um, you know, this uptick in, in inflation was a sort of uh, year on year effect at the end of the year, and, that, and it wouldn't last much into, into 2022. We can now see that it, it will persist, uh, certainly for the first half of this year. The question of, of supply chains, and you touched on this, and lots of businesses are, are being affected by it. And you made some interesting observations about Omicron and China and the timing of the spread of, of, of COVID there. And it might sort of have a, a little bit of a, a longer tail on it because of that. But you also mentioned the idea of, of onshoring and bringing supply chains a bit closer to businesses. One of the reasons why they went so far apart was for cost reasons. So therefore... If more and more companies bring that supply chain closer to themselves, surely it will drive up costs. And that's a longer term thing. Yes, it is. And, but uh, we've actually seen this happening in the past decade. So uh, globalization peaked, as I say, around sort of 2008, 2009. And if you look at patterns of, uh, of trade since then, um, an awful lot of industries have moved to more of a regional model. Now, it does vary depending on the industry. So if you are, for example, a uh, you know, in fast fashion, and you're, you're manufacturing clothes, then that industry tends to chase low cost labor around the world. So it will say, well, now we're in Vietnam, now we're in Bangladesh, 
Bangladesh. Oh, now we found a you know a low cost um, economy in Africa where we can where we can move that to. Um, then you've got something like car making. Car making can't move factories around in the same way uh, that that uh, you know apparel companies can. So car making has very much adopted a regional model. And so you know if you're a big global car maker, you might manufacture in Mexico for the Americas, and you might manufacture in I don't know Thailand for uh, for Asia, and then somewhere in Central Europe maybe for for the European market. Um, and then at the uh, sort of other end of the extreme, uh, other end of the spectrum, you've got something like electronics and you know the classic example here is the iphone the iphone's camera comes from japan the memory comes from south korea the uh, uh the processor chip comes from taiwan the whole thing is designed in california and then assembled in in china um, and then shipped to people around the world and there really isn't much of an alternative um for electronics companies because the chinese and the taiwanese manufacturers uh, those those asian manufacturers of those various goods really are the best in the world you couldn't onshore the manufacturing of iphones to america there's just you know american um suppliers just can't do it um so we are seeing a variation in the extent to which uh stuff has been uh brought closer at least within within the same region but you know within Asia as a whole and within Europe as a whole, most trade is now regional um, rather than global. So we have we've seen a certain amount of deglobalization in the past decade, and I think we're going to see uh, a bit more of it in this de decade. Um, and we're also going to see these attempts to make supply chains smarter and sort of improve visibility within supply chains. Yes, Tom. Um, Kathy Bryce, you know we, we've heard there from Tom the sort of global picture. Yep. about some of the challenges around supply chain, around staffing issues, around the war for talent, the battle to retain people, etc. Just when you look at it from an, an, an Irish business perspective, we really have seen uh, a very rapid rebound from, from the pandemic, haven't we? Oh, totally. Um, Richard, I, I really, you know, standing this time last year, I, I don't think we could have anticipated such a bounce back that we got in, in the second half of last year. Um, you know, obviously, consumer uh, consumer uh, affordability was a huge part of that, where people had built up significant cash balances and they, you know, they bounced uh, out to to spend, uh, um, which was very positive. Just the, you know, and that has impacted on 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 the supply chain issue, and, and I suppose accentuated to a degree because there was such a, a jump in, in in demand, and companies struggling to 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 uh, try and fill that in, in terms of the products. Um, if we talk about supply chains, I think it's an interesting one. I think optionality is, is also another factor. So it's not just about the distance that your supply is, is coming from. I think it's companies realizing that they need to not have too much dependency on one supplier and that they have optionality. So they're thinking both local and, and distance, but also options. And actually Brexit was a key feature in, in helping Irish companies uh, get ahead of that because they had to look for alternative supply chains. Some of the, you know, a lot of companies were quite dependent on, on UK suppliers uh, at that time and realized the benefits of actually broadening that out to two or three suppliers. And then when the pandemic hit, that was useful for them. So, you know, I, I suppose this probably particularly impacts larger companies, but the, the whole sort of third party management discussion has evolved very significantly over the last number of years um, and a lot more thought by companies like ourselves and others going into, well, who supplies things to us? And we need to understand where those services come from. We need to understand the ESG and sustainability uh, factors around the, those suppliers. 
and we need to know, understand how, how viable they are and whether they're you know, financially viable and, and, um, and of course, all of these things. Consumers yeah. are asking those questions as well around sustainability. And, and absolutely. So one of the pledges we make is that not only do we try and be sustainable as an organisation, but that we, we, put sta- you know, we ask our suppliers to have standards as well and to uh, assure us so we can assure our customers. Tom, I want to ask you a little bit about, you talked about remote working, the hybrid model. I, I was trying to detect whether you're um, optimistic about whether it will work, pessimistic about whether it will last. I get the sense that you believe it will last. But is there also a sense that because this is such unknown territory and different companies will have different needs that they will respond to in different ways, this could all end up being a bit of a mess, really? Yes, and that's that's my takeaway. I think this is here to stay, but I think um, figuring out how to do it uh, is going to take a while. And there isn't a single answer. So we see uh, variations within industries, for example. So um, technology is clearly very keen on on remote working. And in fact, some tech companies have been fully remote for for some time. Uh, Financial services also quite keen. Uh, Other industries, not so much. And then within within companies, you know, the sales department very often wants to go back to the office. Sales teams like to be together. Um, People who want to do deep work like programming or writing uh, don't want to be in in an office where other people can interrupt them. And then there are also regional variations. So uh, uh, Western European and North American companies are quite keen on this. uh, But surveys show that uh, in East Asia, um, there is a very different work culture where, you know, getting to the office before your manager and leaving the office after your manager uh, is, you know, is more highly valued and and, uh, and people want to see their their employees in person. Um, so there's much less willingness to uh, uh, to allow uh, more remote working in, in future uh, in parts of Asia. So so there isn't going to be a, a single picture and, and uh, different companies are going to have to sort of work out what's right for for their for them for for their industry in in whichever countries they they operate and this is going to be complicated and some people are not going to like the way it's done and they're going to say well actually I'd rather go and work for that other com- company because they um they have a you know a policy that that more closely matches my needs so I think this is going to be uh, quite a, a messy thing and there are all of these sort of details that that have to be worked out. Kathy, do you think it's going to be about trial and error for a lot of businesses? First of all, do you think it will last and it will endure as a a hybrid model of some kind? Yeah, I would agree with Tom in relation to that. And and that's, you know, that's also what we're hearing from customers uh, as well. Um, Honestly, I think it's one of the biggest puzzles that that faces businesses over the next couple of years is how do you get that balance and how do you make it work within the organisation? And I I think it's going to have to be some trial and error about what activities really do work well with us all being in a, you know, the one uh, building, uh, and what activities work very well with uh, remote working, um, and we don't really fully understand that today. And certainly in our business, we don't understand it. Um, what we, I think, what we do increasingly find, and, and there is an element of fatigue as this pandemic has gone on, is that we miss the sociability, um, and, I, and I, you know, I use that in, in inverted commas, but. Talking to to um, talking to our colleagues, um, learning, training, these things definitely we feel we're losing out. Um, and as leaders in the business, that concerns us. And how do we try and fix that? Um, and how how much time in the office do we need to try and fix that? And, and the implications, Tom, of that you talked about presenteeism and, and questions around. Uh, how, how are people going to get ahead? How are they going to prove their worth? But when it comes to remote working, I, I've spoken to experts who said, you know, 
this is um, a slacker's charter that productivity will go down. I've spoken to experts who said, this actually means the opposite. It's the end of the slacker because there will be greater monitoring of uh, what people are doing and so forth. H how do you see that playing out? Uh, well, you can argue that one both ways. I think, I think one of the questions right at the beginning was the extent to which um, companies were operating on the social capital that they had accumulated when people could you know, work together in person. And there was uh, a lot of concern about, um, well, you know, we've got all these new starters who've never met other people and will, will, will it all sort of fall off a cliff at some point? And there's an active debate about, you know, how much in-person contact do you need? Is it one day a week? Is it two days a week in order to sort of maintain that social capital? So I think, I think um, Cathy's right. There's a lot of sort of uh, unknowns there. And as for the slacking question, um, yes, I've, I've heard stories and I'm sure you have too of people who, you know, who end up taking uh, multiple jobs because, you know, uh, they can get away with it and, and each employer doesn't realise they're also working for a for another company, um, but at the same time, you know, people do find that they they can be they can be more productive uh, if they're not being interrupted and if they're trying to do if they're trying to do deep work. And um, and I, I'm I'm not persuaded that this is a slackers charter. I think the important thing is this requires different skills from managers and a different approach from managers. Remote work and and, and managing remote work means you have to be very very clear about what you want people to do. So you need to be good at communicating. And you need to be good at communicating through. Um, through writing, through emails, through Slack messages, whatever, rather than sort of what we imagine is sort of the the, the charisma of an in-person leader, which is sort of what we imagine managers uh, need to be um, in 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 the office in the in an in-person environment. So so there's that aspect of it, but there's also the idea that managers need to judge people on the output of the work that they do, and this the sort of output based. Um, metrics, which is, um, you know, I want you to do this by this time, and you have to specify that very clearly. And then if you if you do that by that time, then that's great. And actually, how long it takes you is, you know, that's fine. That's that's up to you. Um, and you know, judging people on output um, is. A, a, a good thing in lots of other ways too because it means that you really are looking at whether people are doing good work or not and you're not judging them based on whether they look the same as you or whether they're somebody you get on with in person or whatever and so uh, fully remote companies have, have have and i've spoken to quite a few of them in the, in the past couple of years about what they can tell us about the future of work and they say the same thing which is that um you know they they hire uh, managers have to be very, very good at writing. You have to have written culture. You have to write everything uh, down in ways that people can see it so it's clear what everyone's doing, but also that judging uh, people's performance based on the output and not the appearance, the sort of performative uh, work um, becomes much more important. And if you do those things, then actually your company does become a lot more efficient. And potentially you can then open up sort of new uh, opportunities like can you can you get more work done in less time? Can you work? Can you move towards things like a four-day week? I think that's another thing that uh, people are going to be talking about. I'd be interested to hear what Cathy thinks about that and whether uh, she's been hearing that from customers, because there's been, I think, a lot more talk about the four-day week um, in the past few months. Yeah. And it, it reminds me, in a way, of the, the joke about the employee. The boss comes over to the employee and he's on a computer screen playing a video game and the boss says, uh, why aren't you working? And he says, because I didn't see you coming. <laughs> and it, perhaps it does away with all that because you'd be able to monitor him remotely as to what he's doing or not. But Cathy, a couple of things that Tom talked about there, and one of them, which ran right through large elements of his presentation, is about online and the digital world and companies, the need to, for digitalization. And digitalization, when you look at the Irish business landscape, 
Where are we at with that? Where are we at vis-a-vis small businesses and SMEs versus bigger companies? And there's there's a cost, there's an investment in doing yep. that. Um, like I, I said earlier, I, I totally agree with uh, Tom there. I just think this is an, an inexorable sort of uh, development. I, I loved his uh, phrase about, you know, we want the robots to come, you know, and, and this change in psyche. And, I, you know, I, I see that a little bit as well, less, less threat around technology and more understanding of the great benefits it can bring us. Um, so, you know, just in terms of AIB, we're investing heavily still in digitization. You know, we pro- we thought we'd done a lot and we had done a, you know, a very good consumer app. But now we know we need to bring these services to our business customers and, and we need to, you know, um, a, keep going with it. Um, so uh, and I, I we talk to companies, um, really, they're all thinking about this, um, you know, what can AI bring to their manufacturing, to their uh, service development? It is about efficiencies, but I think it is also about the experience that the consumer uh, gets. And um, uh, but in terms of the investment, and particularly for small companies, I, I think um, people, you know, they shouldn't worry, you know, and, and say, "God, I'm never going to be able to afford it." I think it's really about tracking. Um, you know, it's about tracking, it's about awareness and there will be come a time when it is affordable for their business and knowing when to strike then I think is the key thing um, and not just sort of ignoring the, the subject. Um, it's really trying to understand your, your competitors, what are they doing, what are the opportunities because um, as I said, there will become a time and I, I say it around, also around sustainability when, you know, investment will make sense and being there and being ready to do it and being teed up to do it is, is so important. Yeah. And Tom, when it comes to sustainability, you talked about climate change, the need for businesses to, to respond to that and also the imperative because they're being watched, they're being regulated. Many large corporations are very keen to do this and they're talking about going to net zero. What about smaller businesses and, and where do you, do you think to some extent that the jury is still out on a country by country basis as to who's going to pay for all of these uh, climate change initiatives that, that need to be introduced. Some of it is private sector, some of it is state. Yes, I think, um, I, I, I think politicians need to, uh, need to level with, uh, with the public in, in, uh, and essentially you know, be honest and say, switching to net zero to a clean energy system is going to cost money. Um, it's going to cost about $100 trillion, which is about the same as global GDP right now, but we, we can spend it over, over sort of 20, 25 years. Um, and so we need to be spending, say, $5 trillion a year for the next, uh, for the next 20 years on this um, if we're going to get to net zero. At the moment, globally, we're only spending about two, a bit over $2 trillion a year on, uh, on new energy infrastructure. This is why we've seen this, uh, this crunch um, at the end of last year, uh, energy demand shot up, and in in Europe, where we're very dependent on natural gas, in Britain we certainly are. Uh, you know, we ended up turning on old coal-fired power stations again during the COP26 summit, which was not a good look. But it's because we're not investing fast enough um, in in this new energy infrastructure, and ultimately, you know, that is going to mean higher energy prices, and we are we are going to have to. The idea this is a cost-free transition uh, is not true. Um, Just on that but, point. 
point. You know, yeah. that's what's that's what's got to happen. And given that we have to spend that much money, we either spend it now slowly, or we have to pay more more quickly later, and it's going to be more painful. So I think um, yeah. I think we need to kind of get used to that. And it's, it's going to mean upgrading, you know, um, heat pumps and all this sort of new technology that needs to come in. Kathy, for Irish businesses, that that yeah. point about are we moving quickly enough? Uh, Tom mentioned about heat pumps. There's an issue about whether, as the technology moves on, the costs associated with these things should be more favourable as well. Are, are, are we moving quickly enough here? Yeah, um, I think I think government, um, you know, could help here um, with grant aid and, and, and things to really try and um, put significant momentum into it. Because once you you do get that increased volume of demand. Um, all of this equipment should become a lot more affordable. And we've seen it with wind power development. You know, 20 years ago, it was incredibly expensive to even produce very small wind farms. Now they're, they're, that production is happening on mass scale at a much more affordable level. So, um, so that's the, the upside and, and the optimism. Um, uh, I think, uh, and you know, we, we've seen the Irish government come out with a significant commitment. And I, I think they will, they will look both at us as house owners, but also at businesses trying to encourage with, with different grant um, encouragements. Um, but businesses need to be looking at the subject themselves, not waiting just for, for government. Um, and uh, there are some relatively less costly things that businesses can do in this whole area. And being keyed up for that and really having some sort of a plan, I think is important. It's important um, for their for, for their customers that they're able to articulate that and say, look, you know, we know where we are today and we know where we'd like to try and get to. Um, yeah. Thank you very much, Cathy. I'm afraid we'll we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Tom Standage from The Economist and to Cathy Bryce from AIB. We're going to take a short five-minute break so you can get the kettle on or whatever. And we'll be back with our panel discussion and a close look at uh, how Irish businesses have been uh, grappling with the last year and also what they see as the big trends ahead in 2022. And we'll be hearing as well from Catherine Moroni of AIB. So we'll be back in five minutes. Thank you.
Welcome back, and you are very welcome back to this AIB Business Leaders Live event where we're talking about business trends for 2022. Before the break there, we got a very good macro view of a lot of the global, international, and indeed Irish trends uh, facing business, whether it's inflation, supply chain issues, etc. We're going to move a little bit closer to home now and a little bit more specifically, we're going to talk to uh, two businesses. Uh, we're joined by Una O'Hagan of the uh, Mar Pharmacy Group and also by Sean Murray of SNAP, Chief, Chief Executive of SNAP. And I'm also joined here in studio by Catherine Moroni, who is Head of Business Banking Market at AIB. So I suppose if I could go to you first, Una. Yeah. Um, Una, the, the question, I suppose, first of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself and about uh, the Mar Pharmacy business. Okay. Um, well, good morning, everybody, first and foremost. Um, so my name is Una O'Hagan, and I'm the owner and the managing director of the Marriage Pharmacy Group. Um, first and foremost, I'm a pharmacist by profession. Um, I came from the north to Dublin to study in Trinity, and I just never went home. Um, so I did my intern year for Pierce Marr after I finished in Trinity, and I fell in love with his store. Um, and four years later, I bought the business from him. So that had been a pharmacy in the heart of Dublin for four since the 1920s it had been his mum's business um, before that so I've grown the business from that one pharmacy up to nine pharmacies now and in parallel with that I guess in 2014 uh, on the back of lots of customer surveys and always asking our customers what else can we do we set up an online business um, so an online arm to the business in 2014 and and that has grown every year since, but particularly since um, since the pandemic. And we're now, I suppose, looking after customers the length and breadth of Ireland um, into lots of new markets and shipping internationally to 58 different countries all over the world now. Great. Uh, sounds great. And we'll talk a little bit more detail about that shortly. Uh, Sean Murray, tell us a bit about yourself and Snap. Oh, hi, Richard. Uh, nice to meet you. Um, yes, uh, my name is Sean Murray and I'm the CEO of Snap. Um, I was drawn into the business uh, close to four years ago, um, probably by the diversity of what the business offers and indeed the expertise as a team when I first got to meet them. Um, I suppose the best way to describe our business would be as a marketing company, um, whereby we help other companies' brands look great. Um, and that's a quite a big responsibility. Uh, we actually do it through um, our team, which are based across Ireland. And we leverage uh, a range of products and services. Uh, the first one, and probably one of the most important within, is design. Um, as most uh, key things start with design, and we would be a large employer of designers in Ireland. The design approach would then flow through to a print solution if it was required by the customer, or indeed signage, which covers both internal and external work. Uh, across wall floor or indeed window graphics and thankfully um, in the current times we're in we are experiencing a healthy uplift in customers putting their offices through a branding refresh which I suppose gives their work environment a bit of a vibrant uplift um, and then of course we do a range of promotional uh, products or gifts uh, which we manage end to end and, and again that was embraced by a lot of companies during the pandemic um, by way of employment engagement and recognition programs and then lastly, we have a digital marketing offering, which I know we've talked a lot about digital earlier in, in this conversation, which includes um, both website development and video development, which are two key ways, I suppose, you can promote your, your, your business. Um, so I suppose while we put considerable expertise and focus on the image of a company, we also put a huge focus on service and quality. 
And uh, our business is not too far off 40 years in business, uh, which I suppose is a considerable mile, uh, milestone and achievement in itself. Okay. So um, that's a little bit about SNAP. Great. Thank you very much, Sean. Una, when you look at business trends for 2022, people are talking a lot about online, about digitalization. You had going into the pandemic uh, an online business. You got into it early. You obviously have the stores as well. What, what do you see as the future mix of that and how, how that's playing out for you? Yeah, well, we definitely seen um, since 2014 when we set up the online business, we could see the growth every year. But what we realized throughout all of this pandemic was that we were only really scraping the surface of us and um, and online exploded, I guess, whenever people went into lockdown and they had no other choice other than um, shopping online. And we, we seen that people who were hesitant possibly about the online experience before really embraced it um, really now find it a very convenient way to shop, um, a very safe way to shop. Um, if you're worried in any particular way about coming into a pharmacy setting, um, it now is a great alternative. Um, we do next day delivery. Um, all over Ireland and and we can get product even to the States within a few days. So people are really embracing it now. Um, and I guess throughout the pandemic, because, and Tom talked about this earlier in his presentation as well, um, because consumers couldn't come into pharmacies, a lot of people were cocooning at, at the very beginning, we had no other way of engaging with those um, clients really other than digitizing our offerings. So, so basically people were looking to get their medicines, but they couldn't come in to see us because they were cocooning. Uh, and so we... I suppose, set up a video pharmacist, a digital offering to look after their needs um, from the very get-go. So this has been in our strategy document for about five years, um, but we did it within two to three weeks. Um, so we were the first people in Ireland to set up a, an online pharmacist offering so customers could actually talk to our pharmacists, to the people that they trusted um, in a virtual world, um, get the advice and and I suppose alleviate a lot of their fears that they had um, online. And then what was a real game changer for us was actually the Minister of Health changed the legislation here in Ireland to so that we could actually accept digital prescriptions. And this was a, for the very first time. We've been talking about this in healthcare for years and years and years, but it never ever actually occurred. And, but we and had no just on the uh, on the online part of it there. Did you notice people talk a lot about younger generation being very uh, digitally literate, older generation, yeah. it's more challenging for them. How, what, yeah. what way did that play out for you? Well, for our first um, customer to engage with the video pharmacist was a 65-year-old lady. So it wasn't just the younger demographic. What we found was that's the assumption that we make and that's the assumption possibly that we even met as a business going into this pandemic but actually the older generation has absolutely embraced this because they feel a lot safer and uh, and they felt that you know instead of coming into a pharmacy where you know despite all of the government re recommendations was if you you know if you had symptoms not to visit your pharmacy well if you were living alone and you had symptoms there was nowhere else for you to get medicines whether it be you know something for a temperature or a cough or, or whatever and so people were coming in with symptoms and they could have been standing right beside someone who was coming in for their anti-cancer medicines so people felt very uncomfortable in that situation and we felt very uncomfortable as healthcare providers 
um, being in that scenario. So we really pivoted and really pushed our customers to actually engage with us in a digital world. It was much safer for our teams. It was much safer for our customers. And we were able to actually use the online platform that we had set up to not only get out their, you know, healthcare, their vitamins and their minerals and so on and so forth, but actually to get their prescriptions out as well. So customers could actually stay at home could see our online digital doctor, which we set up once a minister had made that change. They could have a consultation with the GP. They could, the GP could then send the prescription to us virtually, and we could dispense that, have an online consultation with our, our, our um, client, our, our patient, and then put that prescription into our, our logistical channel and get that out to the consumer. And, and of course, and they, then that, that opens up many other possibilities around uh, telemedicine for the future. And we can talk about that too. Uh, Sean Murray, if you were to, we're talking about patients taking the temperature. If you were to take the temperature uh, of business and the Irish economy right now, we definitely have seen a very strong rebound. Are, are you seeing that in the clients you're talking to? Are they willing to spend, willing to invest? What would you say things are like now? Um. You know, I, uh, I think this is a topic that is certainly in most of our minds when it comes to the year ahead and indeed having gone through the last two years. Um, um, from our business perspective, we're actually seeing uh, an increase in business coming through and certainly in the back end of last year. Um, on a personal level for the year ahead, I would be very optimistic in what I see and the level of engagement coming from businesses. Um, on a factual sense, I would say we're in a much better place to that of a year ago. Um, and if you take into account how COVID is unfolding, as Tom talked about earlier, um, that, that's factually true. Um, look at more of the financial end of things. You can see that GDP is expected to land somewhere around 6 or 7% this year, which is promising um, after growing 15% last year. Um, and indeed, tax receipts have thankfully have showed a healthier increase to last year to include the VAT. So people are actually still out there spending money, which is very positive to see for, for every industry. And of course, um, we've been nowhere without income tax, and thankfully it too is up. So the government's PUP or PUP program has certainly played its part, in my view, in keeping companies alive. Um, so it's been very well received in that respect. So I would say in, in, in the round, um, I think all have contributed well uh, to strong tax receipts, and the economy has proven, I think, to be very, very resilient, and very, very resilient business owners and indeed employees. So. And that augurs, that augurs well when you look ahead of 2022. C Catherine uh, Moroni from AIB, businesses, many businesses have seen a very solid rebound. They're looking at a very good order book, a very good position to be in uh, going into 2022. But, you know, that all has to be financed. Mm -hmm. That's where the bank comes in. Um, what, what kinds of things are you seeing that, that, that business customers are, are looking for? Yes, thanks, um, Richard. And... Um Thanks for, for that, uh, Una and Sean. There, you know, we're full service, so we're seeing requests uh, for, for all types of finance, short term, right out the spectrum to long term. The kinds of things I think that they're financing, which is uh, where you're coming from, both that supply chain. We heard earlier from the, the former speakers about the supply chain challenges, the, the cost of shipping alone more than quadrupled um, over the course of COVID. Now it's pulled back a little. So we're seeing a lot of need for stock financing, trade financing, all the way through to, you spoke about sustainability. Um, to put that in context, at the COP26, the IMF said to uh, us that Ireland's per annum spend on sustainability will be 20 billion 
per annum for the next decade. So there is, uh, notwithstanding that we don't have all the technologies we may have, there's a lot of proven technologies and there's huge investment, both at the high ticket end, like wind and it, right down to businesses like we have here saying, I want to improve my bottom line energy costs. So investing in energy saving and in better refrigeration. And uh, so it's, it's the full spectrum really. And it's very active. Is it, is it becoming more of a priority for businesses? You know, many of them might have been saying we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do that. Often it can be put on the long finger. Do you get that sense that it's becoming more of a priority? Yeah, that's a very good point. I think we, we, we've seen a game of two halves, really. So in 2020, everybody was trying to, you know, we had locked down. It's very, it was a very different world. So it was really about survival and nobody knew where they were going to go. So we, di we did see a very sudden fall off in investment. Uh, mainly businesses saying it wasn't a cash flow crisis. It was a different type of question. And the question they were saying is, I don't know when I'm going to be open. I don't know when I'm going to have the cash flow for that. So I'm just going to hold on. Totally different now, roll forward to early 2022 and, and late last year, we're seeing businesses going, I, I feel I know what the trajectory of this is going to be. We are going to start post-vaccines living with COVID. And there's a catch up in investment. And there's also an understanding that there's a way of financing now that it's it's positive for the EBIT if you match the life of the asset with, with the debt. So we're seeing a, a huge increase in investment in business. Everything from vans, many going electric to all the way through the supply chain into investment in their own infrastructure and their energy, heat and light. Okay. Mm -hmm. Una, when you look at uh, challenges that are out there and also maybe things that changed during the pandemic that you would see enduring, you know, in, into the situation we're in now, a lot of people talking about remote working and also challenges around people and staff, finding the right people, retaining people, and making that, that remote working model work as well. Yeah, yeah. What are you well, definitely, um, you know, our business is almost because the stores are open for trade. We were always, every single day, we were up and out and we were in the eye of the storm. So <clears throat> then our support office moved to remote working, like literally overnight. Uh, obviously, it was. It was an ultimate test whether we could actually do this, a huge experiment, but actually it has been hugely, hugely successful. So the way of work has completely changed. It's revolutionized. Um, and there's no more going back, like as Tom had said earlier in his um, session, that is my experience. We'll never go back to the nine to five, Monday to Friday. Uh, again, remote working now has a huge attraction, I guess, whenever I look at, you know, who were competing against for some of the roles. Everybody has remote working there as an attraction. So we have to embrace this. So we need, and, and, and it's been hugely beneficial actually, because we've been able to recruit outside of Dublin now. We've been able to recruit even outside of Ireland from, for some skill sets, which we never would have even considered before. So, but at the same time, it's not without its challenges because it's very difficult to keep like a business like mine where we, we always got together. We were based on family values, on collaboration, on sparking ideas off each other and that agility, always pushing forward, pushing the boundaries and, and really innovating, trying to stay ahead of the curve. It's very hard to do that in a virtual world, you know, without that energy in the room. Now, there are ways that we're working through that. Um, and the key thing for us is, has been 
how do you try to replicate that in, in a virtual world? And it is going to be a hybrid model for sure for our business because we don't have the space to even bring everybody back, even if we wanted to bring them back. So we're going to have to look at how do we bring certain teams together, certain departments together to get that energy in a physical world and then how do we continue to keep the culture alive um, so what other engagement measures do we need to put in place new systems new ways of working to keep culture um, and our values alive because that's what has been a huge attraction to the Mars business all throughout the 20 years I've been in business people are attracted to the culture people are attracted to those key values and it is hard to actually do that in a virtual world now we're members of Great Place to Work so we're constantly checking in with them and seeing what other companies are doing we're trying we're tra testing lots of different things but for me, the critical thing has been engagement of our people. We have to always be constantly going back and checking, you know, what is landing well, what's not landing well, and do more of what is landing well. And everybody is different. I want to bring in Sean here. Sean, in a way, people, retaining people, hiring people, finding the right people with the right skills, it's part of a resource management challenge, isn't it, for businesses? Do you think that's one of one of the big issues out there that has to that the businesses have to try and get right right now? Yeah, I do. Um, I think it's probably one of the standout challenges uh, in the time ahead um, in that holding on to good people and the getting more. Um, and certainly from people that I speak to or, or, or hear from and indeed what we're experiencing ourselves, uh, it is a challenge faced by by most industries. Um, and I suppose there's no one um, quick fix quick fix answer to it um uh, other than i suppose um putting measures in place to try and combat it somehow you know what about other challenges that you see out there sean um i think there's other challenges i mean we talked about remote working i think that's going to be a big challenge a big challenge for businesses in how to adapt to it um in how to manage remotely um having I suppose being up to date on employment law matters um, ensuring you've got your uh, employee handbooks in place with policies and procedures because the dynamic then of people being not in front of you or not being in that physical organisation environment is going to present its challenges if not managed well um, but I think that is going to probably adapt in time um, I do think that there will be a hybrid model which companies will embrace and that's going to fit, as Tom mentioned earlier, the desires of both employees and employers. Um, but I think it's going to find its place. Um, and I do think, which I think Tom slightly referenced, that management um, should probably focus more on where their team are getting them to, uh, suppose the output or achievements of results versus what they are doing. And I think that whole relationship with work has been transformed in how people look at work. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and then, of course, there are many other challenges as well that we've probably talked to. Yeah. Catherine, we've talked a bit about digitalization. We've talked a little bit about sustainability challenges. From a, the bank's point of view, if I'm running a business. I've, I've had to up my game in terms of digitalization, but I'm not quite where I want to be. I'm beginning to look more at sustainability and how I might do that. You know, what, what, what part can the bank play in all of that? Okay, yeah, it's, it's absolutely. And, I, you know, a question our customers frequently ask us, they will say to you, look, over the last two years, we've gone online. So not everyone has transformed in the way Una described there, you know, fully end to end. So they know that they're able to sell online. And they also are, are grappling with that idea of, you know, I have 
I've nearly three types of workforce. I've the retail centric where I have to be physically there. I've the mostly work centric. So for example, you might have people delivering and servicing and stocking, you know, but, but they can do other things at home. And, and then you have the remote centric. And you're trying to overlay all of that into what do I spend and invest in digital and likewise in sustainability. So what I would say uh, to any business that's looking at this in terms of how we look, we're, we're in this full value chain. So we can support everything from the very large ticket, you know, the infrastructure projects, right through to how do I finance this supply chain? How do I finance the fact that motor trade in particular, nearly three times what was involved in their stocking is involved you know, euro-wise in their stocking. And then on top of that, you have the digital change and the sustainability change. So what I would say, and this is really important, the earlier speakers were talking about the cost of that to business and the challenge. And I would say three things. I would say start with the proven technologies that you know can add to your bottom line. And I'll give you an example of that. And, and don't be too concerned on the sustainability front about things that haven't happened yet. So, you know, it, it's not the role of businesses to experiment in technology. It's to wait until it's proven and adopt it. But there are very no, well-known um, investments now. Energy costs have gone up so much. The actual need to make changes to be more efficient are there. So all of the refrigeration, light heat, that's all there. We understand them all. We can do that for customers. And the, the critical thing in those conversations are indeed fully end-to-end -end online. As, as, as Una said there, we, we have that ability. You don't have to come in if you don't want to. But what I would say is look at the life of the asset that you're buying and try to avoid paying it out of your upfront cash flow because we don't know how things are going. You might need to have a certain amount of cash flow behind you for those rainy days. And then just look at the, you know, if, it, if you're investing in a refrigeration system that has a five, seven year life, and if you invest in that over a five and seven year life, you can actually see, you can, we have seen cases, we sector experts who look at this with our clients, you could actually have a minor improvement or a neutral position in your EBITDA. And then you're saving your cash flow. Obviously, you have to repay the debt, you've got the depreciation, but that can work, work very well. And then on the digital front, very briefly, the, again, the proven technology. So that ability to uh, transact online, to make it very easy for customers. And, and very often the question we get from customers is, I now actually have to do both. I have to have the experience of being able to come in and browse, I've been able to go online. But even the margin products that sell in a browsing environment relative to, to digital can be different. So it's, that's that end-to-end -end digitization, which is much more involved. But again, all of those assets, particularly asset financing, can work really well. Sometimes customers think that it has to be a, a physically visible product that's financed. It doesn't. If we can see that it works in your cash flow, we understand those technologies and, and we can help all the way, all the way from the equity to the, to the working capital. So there, there are options there there. as well. Mm. Una, when it comes to uh, consumer trends and things yeah. change during the pandemic, looking ahead, what sort of changes do you think uh, are out there that, that will endure, that will last? What are the things that you're, look, you're seeing and looking out for? Well, definitely in our world, um, what really came to the fore I think throughout the whole pandemic, you know, we became less materialistic and much more concerned about our health. And obviously that bodes very well for, for our industry. So people really cared actually about the health of themselves, the health of their loved ones, their family, and actually their employees as well. So this preventative care 
is is definitely going to be something that continues. Like we talked pre-pandemic about the importance of vitamin D. We're all deficient in vitamin D, say, in Ireland in, in the winter months, or the importance of good gut health, because that really bolsters your immune system. Well, now, because of the pandemic, people really had an appetite to actually learn about that. And they really embraced preventative health. They wanted to make sure they stayed well, as opposed to waiting until they got sick. And we see that play out with the role of vaccinations. Look how much we engaged. We have 94% of the population now, um, you know, fully vaccinated in Ireland. So the importance of vitamin D, the importance of like we, our top selling product throughout this entire pandemic has been a live bacterial um, pro probiotic that supports your, your um, gut health called Simproof. So those type of products where you are staying well will continue for sure. The whole e telehealth will definitely continue because we have surveyed our own customers who have engaged in our online doctor service and our online uh, pharmacist service. And you would think, like Tom said, you know, that it will go back to pre-pandemic. No, it won't, because they tell us 90% of our customers told us that post-pandemic, they want to continue with those options. And what we're now looking at is actually, how do we bring that to the next level? Because we, we set up this online pharmacist service in order to solve a problem at that time because people couldn't come in. But in actual fact, what we've actually discovered is for certain medicines and certain problems that customers have, for example, an embarrassing situation or people going through IVF where they don't want to speak in a pharmacy at a counter to a pharmacist because they're looking over their shoulder to see actually who's listening to them. They would much rather speak in a virtual world to a pharmacist, maybe with their partner, with all of the medicines in front of them. Then, Una, so, as well, uh, there's also a, a trend that was there around shop local. And we, we have oh, seen something of a revival of the suburb over the city centre. Yes. You think that's something yeah, that will endure? Would you factor that into, for example, where you might locate new stores? For sure, for sure. Customers really wanted to support local. They want to support their local community. I see in myself, I wanted to make sure that my own butcher would survive this. And also from a safety point of view, people didn't want to go into town or to the shopping centres for crowds. They were concerned about their safety. So from that point of view, absolutely. The stores that did really well in, in our experience is, is the sub suburban stores, the people where people were shopping local and also the shopping Irish, um, Richard. Like, I mean, we're an Irish business, we've always supported Irish brands, but actually people were actually asking us, is that an Irish product? They were making a choice. You know, if they had two face creams in their hands, they were saying, which one is Irish? And they were shopping Irish because they wanted to pr protect the Irish economy as well. And, and we talked about sustainability. People were asking us the questions, is that a green? Is it refillable? Is that recyclable packaging? About the brands as well. So Tom mentioned it before. Those are the conversations we're having with brands and suppliers now. What is your green agenda? What are you doing? You know, um, and that is making a difference to the products that we're actually deciding to stock. So definitely, I think the big things for us is the reprioritization of health, preventative health. Where I see our business going is not that we're not going to be a place where you come to to get uh, you know products whenever you're sick. We're going to be almost like a clinic where you come to to stay well. So if you've got a chronic illness, we'll help you manage it better. Or if you're worried about developing something, that we'll have diagnostic and screening services to make sure that you know you are empowered with that information, so, so that you way, actually know that's a way in which the, the business model itself is is actually changing. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, th there's a question here uh, has come in for Una. What type of engagement initiatives have you tried so far and what has resonated most with the team? Yeah, so I think the, the key thing, the key learning I have in all of this is that every all of our team are very different and they're working in different situations at home in terms of remote working. Some of our team members don't have the setup that I have, have a home office. They're in their bedroom because they're shared accommodation. So we, what, we, what I have found is our line managers have had to become incredible communicators and incredible engagers of people, different skill set to what it was before. And depending on your line manager and that is ability, then the, the engagement is very, very different. So we've had to survey our customers, our, our, our people. Um, we have tried lots of different tactics through great places to work, what other people are doing. We have coffee mornings um, online. We bring people into to, to the office to actually collaborate together because we know for certain people, they really miss the social interaction. Well, they back, really miss... It's back to the, the campfire, Tom Standage and the campfire again. <laughs> Sean, what about you? The, the challenges around remote working, do you see it um, being a real challenge to the culture of organizations, retaining the culture of organizations? Do you think that this hybrid model that people are talking about will endure and will last? Um, I, I think it will. Um, I think it's um, a medium to address, I suppose, the desires of uh, an employee or the demands or goals of a business. And it, it will work for certain roles, um, and categorically will not work for other roles. I think that's going to be ascertained fairly quickly. Um, and, um, and I do think that the whole, the whole way of working is also evolving. And, um, and because of COVID, we have been launched into this world of remote working, which we would never in, in, in a million years have, 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 have expected to be where we are today. Um, technology has greatly helped. And I suppose that's for people who have got good access to, to broadband and um, good download speeds, it makes their working life probably even better. Um, but I, I, see it, I see it evolving. Um, I see people adapting to it. Um, and I don't think it's, it's going to disappear. Um, and equally, by the way, I, I do think we will need probably more office space because in the office, there's no question that people collaborate better, engage better, share ideas. And also if you're in sales, that whole competitive spirit piece uh, is lost if, if you're remote based working in your in your home or in your bedroom. Um, so I think, look, it's going to evolve over time and definitely it's here to stay. It would, Alfred, be, would be my view. On the question of remote working mm. and businesses then resourcing themselves appropriately for that new model. You know, in many cases, they may need less office space. Tom Standage was saying, who knows, some of them may need more office space. Mm -hmm. Things are just going to change. And also this phenomenon in a city context of the, the, the resurgence of the suburb and people staying local and challenges then that that brings to city centres. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we are going to have to reimagine the city centre. There's no doubt about it. So it, it is fantastic. Like for every one of the challenges we've had, an incredibly resourceful country, we've had a flip side. We've seen opportunities, everything from vans, vans on beaches selling coffees um, to, to people getting really involved in the community and walking down for lunch and meeting someone for a sandwich locally, and going back and working all afternoon. So I think that collaboration and engagement isn't just within your organisation, it's beyond it. And I think that's where the, the city piece is really important. How we use our cities is going to change change. We've heard some debates even about transport in and out of the city and, and how much of that do we need. Personally, I think we're going to need more of that because we're going to have people working 
at home to a degree and then commuting for the collaboration piece and creation and that, you know, getting people together when you want to. You don't want to have a sudden surge of, of, of lots of, of vehicles. The, the more efficient our transport network is, the more we're going to see a good multiple use of our city. And I think the really important thing for our cities will be that they have to be more experiential. So people won't be trudging in and out of work you know, for the nine to five, as, as Una said, they'll be going in, there'll be multiple commute times, hopefully, and we will see a reuse of the city and people engaging in the city, almost like another community in their life, hopefully. But it does require collective thinking and collaboration between, you know, civic community business. And, you know, our role obviously is to participate in that as we do and, and fund it, of sure. course. We have a question in uh, for Una here. Una, how do you keep your passion for business uh, so visible about two years into a COVID crisis? And in a way that feeds into the sector that you're in, I'm sure there have been very difficult days, very challenging days for yourself and for for staff, you know, in, in, in pharmacies at a time when people are going through an awful lot. I'd say a lot of people are very fatigued as well. Yeah, and listen, our experience of this pandemic has been anything but easy. And listen, everybody has, has been touched by this. But, you know, when when the country went into lockdown, our team got, were getting up every morning. We're going in into the eye of the storm. There was no screens. There was no masks at that time. We had the images of Italy and Spain and, and you know, all of that fear, absolute fear. And yet... You know, what, what people sometimes forget in community pharmacy is that a lot of people work in community pharmacy because they have an underlying issue and um, they have an illness, they're immunocompromised in some way, and they want to give back to the community because somebody has helped them. So our team, um, despite the fact that a lot of them had underlying conditions or had family members who were undergoing cancer treatments or, or were immunocompromised themselves, still showed up every single day. And I have lots of them who tell me that they arrived home, they stripped in their porch, they put their uniform into a black sack, they ran up the stairs, bawling, crying, screaming, getting into the shower and scrubbed themselves down for fear of bringing the virus home to their mum, their dad, who was maybe going through cancer treatment. And yet every day for two whole years, they did that. And they did it because they didn't want to let their colleagues down. They didn't want to let their customers down, the most vulnerable people in society, and they didn't want to let their community down. They want to make a difference. And that's what gets me up in the morning because I lead that 150 people team. And even though I hadn't got a clue what I was doing and I was building the plane whilst flying it, I needed to stay calm. I needed to make sure that they didn't get my fear so that they knew that everything was going to be okay. Because I knew everything would be okay. I just didn't have the answers day to day. Sure. And I said to my team throughout this entire pandemic, every single day, we don't know what's going to happen, but we will do the next right thing for each other and support each other through it. And we'll do the next right thing for our customers because some of our customers have no one else in the world except for us. And so we have to stand up, be responsible and be accountable throughout this pandemic. And I am really proud to say, looking back, we did that. I don't know how we did it, but I can tell you now, getting through that pandemic, I will get through anything in business and my team will get through anything. And it's brought us closer together. I'm sure. 
I'm sure, Una, it has. And, and uh, fair play, it's just incredible what, what people in, in businesses and, and in sectors like your own have done throughout this whole period. And it's great to see the business coming out and coming through that in such a, in, in such a vibrant way. It's a testament, testament to everybody. And uh, Sean Murray, I want to ask you here a question. It sort of feeds into the whole staff and people retention area as well. When you look at your business, you have some, uh, you have a franchise model, you have some of the outlets are, are company owned, et cetera. What are you doing differently post pandemic, having come out of all of this, that uh, is a change to the way you're looking at things, is a change to the way you do business or your business model or the kind of people you're looking for as, as franchisees, for example? Um, well, probably two things come to mind. Um, first would be around the, uh, the franchisee or the profile of a franchisee. Um, our traditional model would uh, have a franchisee uh, front and centre who would lead across uh, operations, sales, design, production, etc. And that person would need a considerable range of competencies and skill set to, to manage that team. And if you were to hire in at an entry level, um, to get somebody up to that level would take a considerable amount of time. And currently, in, in, in the current environment, to find somebody who has that level of experience is also a challenge. So one of the things we have done is we've developed a, a new model, and we've called it Snap Connect. Uh, and this model, by the way, is a more uh, lean franchise model uh, with predominantly one person leading the charge uh, and somebody who has, I suppose, a stronger skill set in the area of selling uh, and sales. Um, the type of person we probably look for in that area would be somebody who's ambitious, um, have a sales focused, uh, certainly on the consultative selling side of, th of things. And I suppose somebody who has a strong desire to build relationships and develop customers. And um, for anybody interested in joining our business, I would probably best describe the opportunity um, as getting into business for yourself, but not by yourself. And we have an experienced team to help with the learning curve. And I suppose the other thing is our business is nearly 40 years in business, and we've done that with no e-commerce presence. Um, we're, we're currently about to, to launch an e-commerce presence in the coming months, which will, which will sell a number of key products and services to our marketplace. And, and that's something that we've, we've I suppose, been accelerated uh, due to COVID-19 in the last few years uh, and something we're quite excited about. So I think every company is probably looking at either their staffing, how they sell online, sell offline, how they engage with customers, how they stand out from the crowd. And, um, and I suppose it's something that uh, if you put the right focus into it, it, it can get you to where you want to get to. But as, as Una's mentioned, one of the key components is people and having the right team. Sure. Uh, it's the biggest asset any company has. And, um, and at the moment, there are challenges with that, as we discussed. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to just look at uh, some of the poll results that we have uh, that have come in. And Catherine, you might... Uh, want to take up or comment on some of these. In 2022, how are you feeling about the economic outlook? Positive, say 85% of you, and negative, say 15% of you. Uh, has your business incorporated a more sustainable approach in recent years due to the impact of climate change? 77% say yes, 23% say no. And with the easing of restrictions and the return to the workplace, will your business be adopting a hybrid working model? 100% say yes. What do you think that tells us? Yeah, I, I think that that's that's really interesting. And I, I think if you if you look at them very, very briefly in turn, the first one, the economic outlook, I think what you're seeing there, because that's quite a that's quite a you know, that's not a bell curve. 
And I think what you're seeing there, to be fair, is there's certain sectors who've been more challenged. So the creative arts, certain parts of, some parts of hospitality, you know, outside city centres have done really well, back to that city centre piece. And others, um, particularly in hospitality and hospitality-related transport, have found it very challenging. But I think even for them on that first point, when lockdown stops, we've seen that bounces back very quickly and there's a huge amount of uh, resources, deposits there waiting to be spent, not just productively, but also on people meeting each other and having some fun again. Uh, so I think that that will help hugely with that one. So that, that does not surprise me. The more sustainable approach, it's just great to see that that's, yes, 77%. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the no 23% because there is a journey here that, you know, for all businesses and, uh, I, you know, even in education. So so sectors that you might think for the, the basic things, all of us in terms of our energy, heat and light, waste, this, you know, the circular economy. And there are great supports there and there are great government supports there as well, both for sustainability and for and for digital. And then the last one is gone. Um, but uh, what was the last one again? The, the, it was the, the, the last one related to hybrid working 100% model. 100% hybrid, yeah. 100%. That does not surprise me. The one thing I'd add to that, I think that's really important for business to think about. And we have a role to play in that too. When you're looking at that model, we're all talking about the people, which is critical and the engagement and the retention and uh, creating that space for them to, to feel involved. When you're looking at that, you have to look at three pieces. You have to look at your people, your property and your technology and the solution for hybrid and the efficiencies and effectiveness and how you're going to do that involves all three of those. I mean, obviously leading with your people because you've no business without them, but also how that interplays with what is my investment in technology? That's the digital piece again. And, and also then my property piece, because there are, there are flexible property models also evolving both in city centres and in communities. And that's important to think about that. And, and the reality is that this is new ground, really, mm. uh, in so many ways for so many businesses. But we, we could talk about these issues uh, again and again, and no doubt we will. Hopefully we'll have an opportunity to do that. But we're out of time for today. And I want to thank uh, the panel guests here, Una O'Hagan, Sean Murray and Catherine Moroni of AIB. Thanks also to uh, our speakers, to Catherine, Cathy Bryce, and also to Tom Standage earlier on. And thank you to all of you for tuning in and for your questions and your participation in the polls. It's going to be an exciting year. I think there's an awful lot to look forward to, and uh, I hope it's a prosperous one for you all. Thank you. Bye-bye.